So uh, last, in the last lecture, I spent quite a while trying to convey uh, a sense of how the structure of DNA was uh, discovered. Um, I, the data that led, the crystallographic data that led to it, as I said, was collected by Rosalind Franklin. And I saw there, there's some confusion about this picture that I showed you next. This is not a photograph of a double helix. This is what happened when she bounced electron uh, x-ray off the crystal of DNA. This is the diffraction pattern that she saw. And then one works backwards from that, trying to figure out what kind of structure it was that would have caused that diffraction pattern. You have to be a pretty good ex uh, uh, x-ray crystallographer to draw any kind of inferences from that. And there were people, including uh, Francis Crick, who saw the implications of it right away. But the point was, she, she collected the data, and then uh, the two people that I told you about then, who, whose names you know so well, Jim Watson and Francis Crick, were the two individuals that uh, then solved the, uh, came up with the model that explained the, the diffraction pattern, and therefore we learned the, the structure of DNA as a double-stranded helix. I also tried to make the case that it wasn't two geniuses who sat down in a room, took a look at this, and popped up with the model. It was a story of real people with misadventures and mistakes and recovery from mistakes and so on getting it. It was also uh, a very small group. And I'm going to take just a very small minute. It's the beginning of the uh, class because there's, I have uh, a colleague, Vernon Ingram, who's sitting down here in the front, who was in a member of this very small group of, with with uh, Jim Watson and, and Francis Crick. So he was there while, where all this happened, and almost nobody in the world has had a chance, in, in your generation, has heard a chance to hear directly from somebody who was there when it happened. So I asked Vernon if he'd come and just talk to you for a little bit, just what it was like to be there. Well, thanks, Graham. Um, you seem to be at a very exciting stage in uh, 7014, the structure of the secret of life, no less. And it's interesting that immediately uh, when Watson and Crick um, put together a model of the DNA molecule that fit the X-ray data. That was the point. How do you know a model is correct? Because there are certain distances in the model, and those have to correlate exactly with the distances of the X-ray spots in the diffraction pattern that you saw. That's how you know that a model that you've built to certain specifications corresponds to what the molecule itself in the crystal that you're examining 
actually uh, is composed of. It was by sheer accident that I happened to be working as a biochemist in uh, the MRC, Medical Research Council Lab, at the Cavendish Laboratory where Watson and Crick um, were working. Sheer accident. It was a very crowded lab, as Graham said. And that's something that you should remember. When you're choosing a lab to work in, always go to a lab that's overcrowded. Never go to a lab where there's lots of space. Because a really successful lab attracts so many co-workers, visitors, that it rapidly gets overcrowded. And that was the case in this, uh, in this laboratory. The director was Max Perutz, co-director John Kendrew, doing x-ray crystallography of uh, proteins for almost the first time and solving the protein structure. Uh, Francis Crick was a graduate student of um, Max Perutz's doing his PhD work. And the first thing I remember about Francis was when I went there as a biochemist to work with Max Perutz, when I went there, there was this tall, gangling guy constantly circulating between the top floor of the building, his office in the middle, and the x-ray machines at the bottom. He was constantly going up and down. And in those days, the buildings didn't have any uh, elevators, or lifts, as the English call them. So he was in excellent physical shape. Uh, very crowded, a very modest lab. And what's usually forgotten is a key member of that group, an engineer, Tony Broad, key person, because he invented what was then the world's best and most efficient x-ray machine, a rotating anode x-ray machine. And it because to the x-ray crystallographers in that group, this machine was available. Because of that, they were the preeminent x-ray structure group in the world. My job was as a biochemist, protein biochemist, uh, putting a heavy atom, mercury, very heavy atom, into Max Perutz's hemoglobin crystals in specific places. That has a predictable effect on the x-ray pattern, and that enables the Fourier diagram to be uh, constructed with real phase values for the x-ray diffractions um, for the physicists among you here. Are there any physicists here? Yeah, I thought so. Um, that was a big step forward, and that was also a big step in uh, figuring out um, the structure of the DNA uh, samples, semi-crystals, that uh, Professor Walker 
just referred to, all dependent on the engineer Tony Broad, who is never mentioned in any of these histories. But without him, this would not have happened. So it was an exciting place to work in. Very exciting. We were all young in those days and living the lives of young men and young women with all the complications that arise when you put a whole bunch of very energetic young men, very energetic young women together. And by that I mean the interpersonal relationships, which when you're in a crowded, very active situation, um, can sometimes interfere. And we're always very entertaining, I can tell you that. And I could tell you, give you chapter and verse, but it isn't really so very different from people your age now, right? I mean, that, I'm not saying it interferes with you. Sometimes it might. It's an exciting lab, an exciting time to be there because we were not the only group uh, trying to figure out the structure of DNA. A huge competitor was Linus Pauling at Caltech, who had beaten that same group once before, quite recently, over the alpha helix, the component of the crucial component of protein structure. He got the right answer first, 1.5 angstrom reflection, the alpha helix, and our group, Max Perutz and our group, had been wrong. So the group was smarting under that kind of defeat, if you like. And competition uh, is a wonderful spur, spur, as long as you don't let it get out of hand. Well, needless to say, we didn't. But uh, the, the competition with the, with the um, uh, polling lab was certainly so severe that we awaited the next letter. You see, in those days, new scientific information arrived not by publications that took much too long, but by personal letter. And in fact, the NIH has put together all these various letters in the Francis Crick collection. And when you have time, you should look at those. They're quite interesting because they tell you in a way a scientific paper does not tell you what I feel about my experimental result, what she feels about her experimental results, what it means to me as a person, to her as a person, to him as a person. So we were constantly watching the mail and discussing the news as it came in mostly over a beer at the uh, pub next door, which was very conveniently located. But being a small group crowded together made communication within our group very easy indeed. And we had fights, I don't mean physical fights. We had fights, scientific fights. And um, as a biochemist, I was able to settle a crucial fight among the crystallographers, Crick and Watson, 
who were building the model because, quite frankly, they didn't do, know much chemistry and were trying to build a model with the wrong conformation of the peptide bond. They didn't realize that a peptide bond has two possible conformations. And they had, at one point, a terrible time um, uh, trying to fit everything together because they were using the wrong uh, conformation. I'm talking about lactam, lactim, uh, for those of you who are organic chemists, that means something, uh, conformation. And once they got the right conformation, then the m model uh, clicked into place. So we all helped, that's what I'm trying to say. We all helped with one great aim in mind. It was clear, and you know from what Professor Walker said, that the DNA structure, in its structure, held the clue to crucial physiological behavior of DNA. And um, Crick and Watson said this in their first paper. The structure itself, because of its complementarity, gives you an immediate clue as to how it replicates. And replication of DNA structure from generation to generation is, um, of course, the crucial thing about DNA. The copying, the precise copying from generation to generation. And that fell out of the X-ray structure. That's why the X-ray structure was so very important because it gave you an immediate understanding of uh, the role of DNA in modern biology. So that's what we did, and eventually um, the people in the group, the group got so overcrowded, they built a huge lab, and that's very beautiful, like any new lab is. But the thing I remember most of all was the atmosphere in that place. So remember, when you go and choose a lab, choose one that's overcrowded. It'll pay off. <laughs> so much. That was really wonderful. Thank you. I don't know if some of you realize quite how rare that was, this discovery of the structure of DNA. As I said, probably one of the big discoveries of mankind, because as Vernon said, so much, it was, you could see so many of the secrets of life as soon as you saw that structure. Very few people have ever heard from someone who was there at the time. Maybe you'll forget a bunch of stuff down the line. I hope you'll remember you heard somebody who was there when Watson and Crick were there, and maybe his extra piece of advice about choosing a lab. Um, let's say one thing quickly. Some of you, I think, understood what I've been trying to do. I spent quite a bit of time talking about science being done by real people, real, uh, doing real experiments. Uh, thanks for your comments. A few of you have gone out of your way to say that this was a total waste of time and you didn't understand why I didn't teach you something instead of doing something on the test. Well, I'm making up the test. 
And if you don't think there'll be something on scientific process on the second exam, <laughs> you'll be surprised. So uh, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this. And the reason is, because you're MIT students, you, know, you can go many places in the country, many high school biology courses, and you can memorize all the, someone will tell you to memorize everything that's in the book, and then you'll get tested whether you can memorize it. If you guys are at MIT because you have the potential to be leaders in whatever you do. I've made the transition from being an undergrad, sort of trying to memorize stuff in a textbook, to working on a cutting edge. I've made some reasonably significant discoveries in science, as have my other colleagues in the department, some of them making greater than I. But nevertheless, if you're on that cutting edge, then you're dealing with all the stuff I'm trying to tell you about in, in, in this thing. You're working as part of a group. There's competition. There's interpersonal relationships. You make mistakes. You recover from them. You're making inferences. You're testing models. It's a very complex, very real, very dynamic, very human uh, interaction. I hope you caught a little bit of a whiff of that from, uh, from, uh, from Vernon. And I wouldn't be... I, I'm quite capable of reproducing diagrams from a textbook without trying to give you a deeper understanding, and that's what I'm trying to do here. And I hope uh, if it hasn't made sense to you by the end, at least a few more of you will, will get it. And those of you who I think saw what I was doing, uh, I appreciate your, your, uh, your telling me that in the, in the things. These are anonymous, so I don't know, but you know, a couple of you are certainly trying to make it clear <laughs> that you didn't think it was, um, uh, it was worth your time coming to lecture. I'm trying to tell you why I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to te teach you in a deeper way. That's what I'm, this is a required course. It's important for your life. I hope some of you will see that. Or if you don't see it now, you'll see it later in your career. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about uh, DNA replication. I'm going to start to drive into some of the details that maybe are more the kind of things you're expecting. Just want to make one quick point here. I've talked about cell division. We saw this, how cells come from other cells, go on to make more cells. I showed you this little movie you've seen a few times of a, of a yeast cell dividing. But all cells divide. Here's a cancer cell dividing. If you've got a cancer, it's a cell that's forgotten how to stop dividing and is growing to make a tumor. There's a cancer cell dividing. It looks not unlike a yeast and very molecular level, very, very similar. But there's another point. I told you the, how the structure of DNA with the complementary strands with G pairing with C and A pairing with T immediately gave rise to an insight as to how the, the genetic material could be replicated. And you guys know that it's held together by hydrogen bonds between the base pairs, which are about 1 20th the strength of the covalent bonds. So you're able to peel the strands apart without breaking the bonds, the covalent bonds. And then by pairing A with T and G with C and doing that on both strands, then you can end up with two identical copies. And so if you do two identical copies, they do it again, you get eight. One of the things we've, we've realized over the last few, uh, last two or three years in looking through the exams is somehow at least some of the class didn't connect the business about cells coming from other cells and DNA duplicating to give daughter DNA. And I'm just trying to hammer home the point that these are related. Every time a cell divides, it has to duplicate its genetic information. That's why I'm going to be telling you about DNA replication. Here's a picture of that same cancer cell, but watch over here. This is the DNA. And you can see it's doubled, and see how the, the DNA, which is in chromosomes, has pulled apart so that at the end you now have two cells and you've got identical copies of, of DNA. So if you're studying cancer, for example, <laughs> there's this, this sort of thing is relevant to you. 
Okay, so um, the issue of how, oh, before I do that, I'm sorry, just a couple of things about DNA replication before I dive into this. So we all started as a single cell. Uh, I've got a lot more, obviously, because I'm made up of a lot of cells. If I took all the DNA in my body and I lined up all the molecules in it, you guys any, got any idea how long that would be? Who thinks it would reach, let's say, across the room? Okay, across campus? Across Cambridge? Mm -hmm. round, round the world? <laughs> to the moon? <laughs> Anybody left? To the sun? <laughs> I've got 10 to the 14 cells. There's about a meter or two in each cell. 10 to 20 billion miles of DNA in each of our bodies, human DNA. They would go back and forth to the sun multiple times. So that much DNA had to get replicated in order for the fertilized egg we all started it as to become you. Another thing, the accuracy of replication is about 10 to the minus 10th. Most people including myself, don't have a very good feel for exponents. So that's one mistake in 10 billion. Can we, you know, could be one mistake in 10 to the 99th. What does one mistake in 10 billion mean? So it is, uh, let's relate it to something we know. If I was typing, let's say, eight-letter words, 60 words a minute, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I was as good as DNA replication, how often would I make a mistake? So you can each think of how long you think that is. But if I was good at that, on average, I would make a mistake once every 38 years. So I'm about to tell you about a process that's absolutely astonishing in terms of how, you know, how fast and how much you can do and with an accuracy that goes beyond what we're used to in our, our ordinary, ordinary life. So how does it do this? It has to be more than just pulling the, the strands apart. And there's been some confusion as to why I'm emphasizing five prime and three prime. Well, each of these subunits, each nucleotide, this is a three prime hydroxyl, this is the five prime position. If we were joining together subunits that had a hook and an eye, it would make a difference because it's not the same on both ends. If we're gonna start hooking together, it's it's exactly the same thing when we get to a biochemical level. A hydroxyl at the five prime end is not the same as hydroxyl at the three prime end because the, it's an asymmetric, uh, the whole thing is, is asymmetric. So uh, the enzymes that copy DNA are known as, as DNA uh, polymerases and it was very difficult challenge to uh, figure out how they um, how, how they operated, but Arthur Kornberg was the pers first person to solve this problem. He was an extraordinarily gifted biochemist. He's still at uh, he's still at uh, Stanford, and what he found was um, if we have a five prime end, this would then be the three prime end. And there's a three prime hydroxyl, which is this one right here. 
And this was paired, say, with a C and an A paired with a, uh, a T and, let's say, a G paired with a, a C here. And let's say the next template base was, uh, let's make it a T. What Arthur Kornberg was able to find was an enzyme activity that catalyzed a template-dependent replication of DNA. That was critical because he had to find somewhere, if he broke the cells open, somewhere in that gamish of, of uh, enzymes and, and things from inside a cell, there had to be something that was able to copy DNA. So he, in order to do that, he had to work out an assay, and he also had to have some kind of guess as to what the the cell would be using in order to carry out the synthesis. Well, one thing was sort of obvious was a, was a DNA template, because that was being copied. But the other part was you had to have energy to form a covalent bond. So somehow there had to be something that was sort of activated with the energy built into the molecule so that thermodynamically the whole thing would slide downhill when you made a, when you made a bond. And he knew that the cell had triphosphates, just the same type that we talked about with when we talked about ATP. So this would be deoxyribonucleotide triphosphate. And he was able to uh, make a guess, because he had to try things until he found something that, was work, that would work, that this was what's used in DNA synthesis. So this hydroxyl ultimately at attacks this uh, phosphate here. And these two other phosphates then come off as a, as a leaving group. So if we thought of it as a, a, a P like this with two more P's here, these two come off and you get a, a new bond formed to the, to the phosphate. And so what Kornberg then was able to find by using a DNA template that had this sort of structure and PPP A like this, that he was now able to get an A added here. This new, this hydroxyl here became the new uh, hydroxyl and so the, the, the direction of synthesis, this strand is the other way, so the direction of synthesis of a DNA polymerase, polymerase, it's polymerizing in the five prime to two, three prime direction. This was again an amazing discovery because it was the first time that anyone had found an enzyme that could copy, copy DNA. Arthur Kornberg got a Nobel Prize for it. But at this point, um, actually, genetics came in because there was a scientist, John Cairns, who was at that point down at Cold Spring Harbor, they told you the other day. And uh, John didn't think that, in spite of the fact that uh, Arthur had found a DNA, 
at DNA polymerase that had all the properties that you'd expect for copying uh, DNA, he didn't think that was the one that actually copied the DNA necessary for cellular replication. So he reasoned if he was right, he'd be able to find a mutation that would eliminate the activity of that enzyme and the cell would still live. And so they did a screening and they, it was a lot of work, but they eventually found a mutant of E. coli that lacked this <laughs> DNA polymerase that Arthur Kornberg had discovered and the cell was still alive, was still replicating its DNA. So it told both John and then Arthur, there must be another enzyme in the cell. And so Arthur went back and now working in a mutant that was missing this first polymerase he discovered, he found the one that really replicates the DNA. The first one's important too, it's needed for DNA repair. I'm gonna to talk to you about that in the next lecture, but it's not absolutely crucial for life. And there's an interplay of genetics and biochemistry. And you'll see, I'm just sort of foreshadowing what we're gonna to get to when we talk about the genetics uh, of this. And I know a couple of you clearly were frustrated about me showing you pictures of the people who did this, but nevertheless, since this was such a historic event a couple of years ago uh, at Cold Spring Harbor, this, you see the, the helix model down there. There was Jim Watson opening the symposium. When I got up to talk, I said, well, I'm gonna take, I told my students I'd let them know what it was like when it was there. So I took out a camera and I took a picture of the audience. And so there are a bunch of Nobel laureates and types here who are sitting there smiling for you guys in, in the class. And there was Arthur Kornberg giving his talk. Now, um, these DNA uh, polymerases are incredible protein machines. The crystal structures of a DNA polymerase operating, polymerases operating their template have been solved and you can solve, depending on how many diffractions you can get, you can get a model that's more and more detailed. And there have been some very high resolution models of DNA polymerases. This blue and white stuff is the surface of the protein and this is sort of the template and the, and the, the various parts. I'm just, uh, to give you an idea here, these tracings of the, of the shapes of the, the electron density and you can see how the crystallographers have fit the nucleotides uh, into these, uh, in the, right, in the, right in the crystal into these electron densities. And here, putting it together a bit is the, in the blue is the secondary structure of the protein and, and the templates and whatnot. And I don't expect you to see very much in that, but the point I want to tell you, I wanted to sort of just set you up to show you this little movie because this is an, DNA polymerases are incredible machines. They copy at about a thousand nucleotides a second and their accuracy is, is really amazing. And I'll tell you all the tricks to the accuracy in the next lecture, but I wanna show you this little movie because it, this is a, a little si sort of a simulation of what must happen every time a nucleotide is added. Now, the yellow here is the, we'll see this over and over again, so uh, I'll take it in pieces. The yellow and the orange are the, are the secondary structures. That's an alpha helix, and certainly one thing you can see is happening as I'm sure as we're looking at this is this the parts of the protein are moving during this you can see this alpha helix is sort of swinging up and swinging back down now what's what's over here is the over on this over here is the template base that's the base that's that corresponds to the T that I was just showing you here this is the incoming nucleotide. There is the triphosphate coming down here. And in fact, you just see those two phosphates going. So what's happening here, here this is going to be the end of the, ch the growing chain. It's going to attack right there, join the phosphate, and the pyrophosphate will leave. 
And when the, if you'll take a look, when you see this movement of this, this helix from the beginning state to up to here, you'll see what happens is it's squeezing the template base and the uh, incoming nucleotide together. What it's really doing is testing for the correct shape. Remember, the shape of an AT base pair and a GC base pair is the same. And if those of you who are confused about guanine and the keto-enol thing, try to draw hydrogen bonds with the enol form of, of guanine and see, how, and see how you do. I think you'll, you'll begin to understand a bit. So this is one of the, so at the heart of life is something that can copy DNA. And there are these exquisitely beautiful machines. Uh, the replicative machine in, in E. coli has 18 proteins, and the ones in our bodies are even more sophisticated with even more, with more parts. Um, okay. But to, to replicate a DNA molecule, there's another problem that comes up, because DNA polymerases copy Let's see. Row chains in a five prime to three prime direction. And they need a three prime hydroxy terminus. So they won't work if you just gave it a single strand of, of DNA. No DNA polymerase can handle that. It has to have something like this, where there's a template strand. And there's what's known as the primer strand. So there has to be something that has the three prime hydroxyl, and there has to be something that's going to provide the template that's going to be copied. So if we pull strands apart like this with five prime to three prime, then this will be five prime to three prime running in the opposite direction. We have a template like this. This is okay because the strand here can be copied five prime to three prime. The, this is the new strand being synthesized by the DNA polymerase. But what about the other strand? The replication fork is moving in this direction, but if the, so here is the three to five prime uh, direction here, so if the DNA polymerase is going to be copying this strand, it's going to be moving backwards to the direction of the replication fork. Now, I guess evolution, nature, could have selected for two types of DNA polymerases, one that copies five prime to three prime, and one that copies in the, in the opposite direction. But it didn't, and there are a number of theoretical reasons that we could discuss in a more advanced course, perhaps, for why that's true. But in fact, what it does is it uses the same polymerase. So as these things peel apart, the polymerase works in the other direction. But there's another problem. There's no 
if I just peel it apart like this, there's no three prime hydroxyl. So it took people quite a few years to figure out the strategy that's used in nature. Nature has a special enzyme that makes a little piece of RNA. It's called a, an RNA primer. What it does is it provides a three prime hydroxyl. And once you have the three prime hydroxyl at the end of the little RNA chain, then the DNA polymerase can be made five prime to three prime. So as, the, as you peel open the replication fork, then you little pieces of of RNA are used to, to make the, a new strand of DNA, and it goes this way. Now, that obviously doesn't give you a new intact DNA strand, and the, part of the clue to this, uh, working out what was going on at DNA replication, was the recognition that newly synthesized DNA was made as little pieces, and then later it got joined into longer, longer pieces. And the person who discovered this was Okazaki. So these fragments of DNA that are synthesized initially are called Okazaki fragments after the, the person who discovered this. It was, it was rather puzzling because little, when you tried to look at the synthesis of DNA, you're looking at a long molecule, and you found some of the newly synthesized material was in short pieces. And as you watched over time, it got, uh, it got um, longer. So. The, the cell, I think you can sort of see from first principles what has to happen here then, that in order to come and make this strand is pretty easy to do, but what the cells have to do now is they've got these little RNA primers Then they remove the RNA by an enzyme that's capable of, of degrading the DNA or clipping it at the junction. And that then leaves the cell in this sort of situation where there are little tiny gaps in between these pieces of DNA. But at the end of each one of these is a three prime hydroxyl. So Another polymerase or some one, one or another polymerase in the cell can fill those little pieces of, uh, of DNA out, and then there's one little nick that needs to, be, need to, needs to be sealed. And so what you finally end up with is a, a three prime hydroxyl here, a five prime phosphate that's at the other end, and then these are joined together. This is one nucleotide here and the other here. These are then joined together to give the ordinary phosphodiester bond that links the two nucleotides together like that. And the enzyme that does that 
It's an enzyme called DNA ligase. You can almost think about it as, as DNA scotch tape. It will take a little nick in DNA. We've got a phosphate and hydroxyl, and it'll, it'll join, them, join them together. So this process of, of replication, which can go at about 1,000 nucleotides uh, a second with this amazing degree of, of accuracy, uses two different DNA polymerases, both of which can, biochemically can only go in one direction. But you can see they have to be somehow oriented in, um, so that one of them is able to move in this direction and the other one is able to move in that direction. The strand, um, the, the key part in this sort of the course is to try and understand this five to three prime and to get this basic idea that nature had to do something. It was fairly easy to copy one strand because that was sort of the direction of the polymerase movement was the same as the replication fork movement, but the other strand had to have been much more of a problem. Uh, and so when you get down to a biochemical level, though it's very conceptually easy to say, oh, you've got complementary strands, so we just take it apart, we make a take the photograph and negative and we make the opposite one and now we've got two copies. When you get down to the biochemical details, uh, there is this major biochemical issue of whether the, the polymerase uh, can go in the three prime or the five prime direction and nature has chosen to do it all or has been selected to do it all somehow in, with a polymerase going in one, one direction. Now there are many, uh, many other aspects to this uh, to DNA replication. And one of, the, one of the tricks that I find most fascinating is that these polymerases, once they get on DNA, they stay on. And that's part of the secret, because it takes about a millisecond to add a nucleotide, but if it comes off the DNA and has to get back on, then uh, it takes about a minute. So the whole trick to being a very, very fast DNA polymerase is to somehow hang on to the DNA. So what biochemists did was they purified uh, the actual enzymatic activity that could carry out this process, and then they started to look for other protein factors that would help the process to work better. And they discovered something called a processivity factor, which made the polymerase stay on the, on the DNA. And people wondered for a lot of years how that works and why did this system work so well. And finally, the crystal structure of a of the processivity factor was discovered. And if I go back to this, this sort of diagram where this is the, the piece of DNA that's copied, what, what it turned out was that the processivity factor is basically a donut that kind of gets clamped around the DNA like that. So it's, a, it's like sort of taking a, a washer with a place where you can pry it apart, opening it up, putting it around the DNA like this, and then the polymerase, more or less, since it's now, this is topologically linked to the DNA. It's like a, a washer sliding on a wire. This DNA polymerase hangs onto that, and it doesn't come off. And the, I think there's a little picture of the, here's a little movie. There's the DNA going through, and this is one of these, uh, one of these clamps. It's the, virtually the same structure in a bacterium and inside of us. But in fact, the amino acids are almost all, all different, but the, the underlying structure of the protein is almost identical. And there's, there are little mach special machines that will kind of, called clamp loaders, that pry open these clamps, 
clamp them around DNA, and that's part of the secret to how these uh, polymerases are able to be uh, polymerized DNA so fast. There are a lot of other pieces of this machinery. If you go on, you'll hear more of it. I just want to give you one of the most recent insights. I mean, this has been studied in this, as you might guess, since DNA replication is at the heart of life. It's been studied very, very hard ever since the uh, discovery of DNA helix. My colleague, Alan Grossman, um, made quite a discovery uh, just probably three or four years ago. Uh, he was he took that green fluorescent protein that we've seen a few times, and he actually joined the, uh, the gene encoding green fluorescent protein to the back end of a piece of the DNA polymerase. So wherever the DNA polymerase went now, there was a little fluorescent <laughs> molecule, and he looked to see where it was in the cell. And I, like many other people, had for years taught, and this is why you know, I have respect for the fact that I'm just teaching you the current model, uh, for much of my career, I taught, so DNA polymerase is sort of like a train going down the tracks, a thousand mile, molecules per second, and we're doing all this stuff with the leading and the, the, with the uh, two strands. Um, actually, let me just put those words up while I'm up there. This one, this is called the strand. It's easy, easy to replicate. It's called the leading strand. And this one where you have to do the primer and whatnot is called the lagging strand. In any case, um, so what I had taught was the polymerase was, was like a, a, a train running on tracks. You could even calculate how fast it would move. What Alan, to his amazement, I imagine, found was when he looked to see where the DNA polymerase was, it wasn't spread out all over the cell as if you thought it was a a thing running in tracks. In fact, it was in the center of the cell, and then late in cell division, it split into two spots that went to the midpoints of what would be the daughter cells. And so what he ended up realizing from that was that instead, it was more as if the polymerase was a, a, a factory, and it pulled the DNA through it rather than it traveling down the, down the tracks of the, of the DNA. And that, has, that was a very surprising discovery that went against all the dogma and all the pictures in the textbook. And it was a discovery made in MIT that was published in, I think it was 2001, something like that. A very recent discovery. Things keep changing. It's again why I keep emphasizing, I, can only, I can't teach you a fact in biology. I can teach you the best understanding we have that's, that's that explains the experiments to date, but somebody may make a discovery tomorrow, that means we'll have to change our understanding, okay? So good luck on the exam. I'll see you on, on Monday, okay?